welcome to the APOG podcast. I am here with PA extraordinaire Sharon Gerard. Uh, so, so excited to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing great. And thank you, Morgan, for inviting me to this podcast. This is very exciting. Oh, I, since I first, I should say, learned about you, I've been just so impressed by all of the things that you've been able to do in your career. And I, I know it's a lot, so I don't want to bombard you. But for, <laughs> for our listeners out there, can you give us a, just a short summary of PA career, what you're doing now? I know it's a lot, but <laughs> maybe the, the key points. Yeah, well, yeah, girl. I will. I will give you the the uh, short version. But yeah, I became a PA in '83, and um, so I wanted to do women's health even before PA school. So I knew that's what I was going to do, even though I did divert into many other specialties. And then about ten years, I did women's health. I did emergency medicine, urgent care, occupational medicine, surgery, <laughs> primary care. Worked in England. I did it all. But um, and then about a little less, a little over ten years ago, I had a case of the burnout. So um, it was uh, pretty bad, and also some health problems. So I stopped working. Um, did a couple of other things like worked on boards and ran for office twice, a state legislature. And then after I lost my second election, I decided to get my license back. And um, I've been in communication with some people who said, oh, I took some time off to have family. Is it possible? And let me tell you, it is. I did 100 CMEs in a little less than two months took the boards again, passed, got my license back because I let it lapse and got a job within two weeks of getting my California license back. And now I'm working in an FQHC doing reproductive health care, um, seeing about 20% men in a really wonderful clinic. That's absolutely the best job I've ever had. I think it's my reward for putting in all those hard years before. Um, I can even take my dog. My, I have a new puppy and I can, it's dog friendly and I'm taking my puppy. Oh my gosh. So talk about a great. <laughs> That's amazing. Picture. Yeah. It's amazing. I have my own office with a sliding glass door onto a backyard. Um, it's just too good to be true. Oh. And um, anyways, uh, I'm, I'm back working as a PA in women's health care. And this is where I'm going to stay until I decide to retire again for the last time. But we'll see where that is. I'm not there yet. So, yeah, that's that's my career in a nutshell. It's certainly a lot to a, a lot to cover. And the reason why I was so interested, not just your, you know, impressive resume, but you certainly have worn many different hats over your career. Like you said, you, you know, worked not just in women's health, but all of these different other areas of medicine, and you stepped away from medicine, and I'm really really interested in hearing your perspective in going between the clinic environment and the non-clinical PA advocacy. You mentioned running for office. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I ran twice for the state legislature. We moved to Arizona six and a half years ago. We thought we were going to retire, retire. Um, so lived in an adult community. And um, I was still, of course, my whole career, I've been an advocate of healthcare and women's healthcare. So my two big issues were women's issues which is very broad and healthcare issues. And I felt that had been being a PA for over 30 years, I had a lot to bring to it. Plus I was wanting to be the first PA ever elected to the state ledge in Arizona. I have heard and researched very few, maybe not even on one hand, PAs that have um, been elected to state ledge. And as you know, Karen Bass, is the only PA that was ever elected to Congress. I was lucky enough to have her mentor me, become a friend. She's absolutely wonderful. She's now running for mayor of Los Angeles. But um, I felt that we need to be out there advocating for ourselves in the forefront, getting the word about PAs out, 
not doctors, not nurses. Lots of doctors have been elected to office. Lots mm-hmm. of nurses in a lot of ways have been elected, though not too many nurse practitioners, but nurses. There's a nurse right now serving in Congress. There's a few, I think. So I felt that it was important to advocate for the profession as a PA running for office. So that was what I did for four years until the 2020 election. And um, that's where we are now. But uh, yeah, no, I I advocated for the the, um, profession, of course, being on the founding board of APOG, board of directors, mm-hmm. the first vice president, the first um, professional education um, person on the board, and also uh, working with AAPA in leadership going back to the 90s. So it, I've always been dedicated um, to advocating for the, the pushing forward of our profession, even though it saddens me to hear a lot of people saying, maybe I made the wrong decision. I should have been a doctor. I should have been a nurse. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm on, you know, those Facebook pages and all those pages mm-hmm. on social media, listening to people. And um, I've been a PA, like I said, since the early 80s, and I can't think of a better career. I'm proud um, and never, uh, never came out as anything else than a physician assistant, now associate, of course. Um, soon, mm-hmm. Hopefully soon. The name change will be. Um, uh, official. And um, yeah, getting it out there for it's funny when I would introduce myself sometimes to people. And um, when I was running for office, and they said, So what did you do for a living? And I said, I practiced medicine. And they say, that's how I would start it. I said, I practiced medicine. And they said, Oh, you were a doctor. I said, No, I'm a PA. It's a physician assistant. So I need, I believe we need to push that forward. You know, nurses, even nurse practitioners still say they practice advanced practice nursing. But I made a point of always saying I practiced medicine for a career and I'm a PA. So that's been very important for me to push that out there. I'm going to adopt that phrase. I like that. I, you know, it's funny. I just had an interview yesterday with a couple of the other founders of APOG and I was talking to them and they asked me, you know, being a a fairly new PA, do you still get asked, you know, oh, you know, why PA? Are you going to go to medical school? And, you know, ask me, do patients still, do they know what a PA is? And I have to say, for the most part, all of my patients know PAs, they've had positive experience with PAs. And I really attribute that to the groundwork that PAs like yourself laid. You know, you had to do a lot of the work to, to, educate the population on here's what a PA is and you know we can and do help patients in a variety of different yeah. ways yeah. so I'll, ex- I'll extend that word of gratitude to you as well because it's I'm kind of getting the benefit of that now that PAs are you know trusted medical professionals and most most people know who and what we are yeah you know now you can just go to <clears throat> Indeed or Glassdoor or a job placement place and and there's a million jobs right that you can apply for Um, And back when I graduated, it was, um, you know, running and I was in the Los Angeles area. So it was a fairly urban place where PAs have been around for a short period of time. And I still, of course, you had to make your own job. You had to explain yourself what you did and what benefits you could have to whatever situation. Um, My first job was hilarious. I worked very short time. Two doctors got together and decided PMS was very big back in the 80s, and they were going to be have a place where women could have their PMS treated. So it was called the PMS Health Center in Encino. It was not there for very long. I got hired as their one and only provider and was out of there in, I don't know, less than a year. Oh, wow. It just didn't go. You know, they said, yeah. well, you can do pap smears and all that. Um, and you can, uh, I treated PMS with progesterone and, 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 uh, all sorts of other things that were, were big back in the eighties. Um, but my second job, my second job was in a multi-specialty clinic in Pacoima, which, uh, is in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles in a multi-specialty clinic in their OBGYN department. And I didn't oh. really remember having to explain myself. There was a couple of nurse practitioners, 
um, in the clinic already, and I was hired without much fanfare. Oh yeah, you're a PA, and can you do this? Can you do that? And so we did. I did OBGYN and uh, did everything, and I was lucky enough to work with a doctor from Taiwan. And I, I don't know whether he's worked with with people like me before, but he just gave me free reign. I mean, I had oh. patients, and this is going back you know, 1984. Yeah. Even back then, he was very open to me doing whatever I felt comfortable doing. But of course, I learned an enormous amount from him because I was still a really new grad. I think I had the benefit throughout my career. When people think about, you know, what kind of job should I choose? And I'm on interviews here and there. I think the thing that I learned the most from was working with physicians and other staff that were really willing to teach, had patience, and were interested in teaching. So I didn't learn too many bad habits. I could run things by people and that they were, they just didn't throw me out and uh, let me make my own mistakes because mistakes can land you in um, court. And so you have to be very, very careful and you have to know what you don't know. And that's the hardest part of being a new grad. So I was very blessed with most of the places I worked, um, working with mostly physicians. I didn't work too much in large groups with other uh, providers like myself, but at least at the beginning. And then I worked at an urgent care and I was the first PA they had ever hired. And there were two ER docs. And here I am, I go from a woman's health multi-specialty clinic and they were amazing again, loved to teach. So here I am, you know, but I was never left alone. I was really, I don't remember ever being in the urgent care by myself where I had to fend for myself. There was always someone around that I could run something by, even if they weren't seeing patients, they were doing paperwork or whatever. Um, I don't recommend urgent care um, on your own the way it is now where they put one or two PAs together and you're on your own um, for a new grad. That's that's too scary. Um, even even with all my- it's You never know what'll walk in. You, urgent cares are worse than the ER, much worse than the ER, because you're right. You just never know what you're going to get. And some people, even I think it's worth worse now than it was in the 80s the people think urgent cares are mini ERs which we all know they're not yeah and they aren't staffed and they don't have what you need for so many things so um, I, I had a bunch of experiences very early on with physicians who were amazing taught me a lot and then I built on that Um, throughout my career. When I was seven years out, and I had been working quite a bit in women's health, I worked at Planned Parenthood, I worked in private practice, I decided to go back and do a postgraduate um, residency in OBGYN and surgery. So after seven years, you think, oh, do I really need to do that? Because most of the people that I trained with in that residency um, were, were brand new grads. But I think I got a lot more from it because I had so much that I mm-hmm. based my experience on. I could build on that. And that was amazing. And that was at Montefiore Medical Center, North Central Bronx Hospital in New York. I picked up my 10-year-old daughter. We just moved. We lived in residence housing. I, I put my job at Planned Parenthood on, on hold. And I said, I'm leaving. Luckily, they took me back after I... Um, after I finished in New York, I came back and they hired me back again, but I uh, stopped my life. My husband stayed in California. We did a long distance oh my thing gosh. and I moved my daughter um, with me and I hired an au pair because I was working a hundred hours a week, you know, as a resident, a hundred wow. hours a week. Back then, you didn't have the, the rules you have now where you have to have a certain amount to sleep mm-hmm. and all that. So we were on a hundred hours a week. And so I had to live in au pair and she took care of my daughter, walked her to school, was with her on the weekends when I was working and all that. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I got, I got a lot of good experience and I'll never forget. I made a friend with a nurse practitioner and I remember calling her up one day and I said, when am I going to start feeling like I am comfortable and not second guess myself and, and feel that I know enough. <laughs> that is the golden question. It is, isn't it? And mm-hmm. I, I think of her words to this day. She said five to seven years. 
And I believe it five to seven years, especially if you move around to different specialties, you have to take five to seven years on each specialty, um, whether it's women's health or urgent care or whatever. So that was the beginning. And I really, really was, I didn't work emergency medicine until the year 2000. So Mm. I had been out of school 17 years and, um, it was kind of a fluke of a job, Really, a PA knew through the state organization contacted me and said, this local hospital never hired PAs before, and they're looking to hire some PAs to pick up the shifts just to try us out and see if they like PAs. Mm -hmm. And he thought of me and I had no, I mean, I worked urgent care off and on, but I never worked emergency, but I said, sure, you know? So of course now um, that hospital and every other hospital is using PAs, lots of PAs. So I liked being a trailblazer because we were an experiment. Well, if we like you guys, then maybe we'll continue to hire PAs. Don't put any pressure on us, right? Oh, yeah, no no pressure whatsoever. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to be the decision making whether we uh, continue with PAs or not. They didn't use NPs or PAs. Oh, my God. So we were the very first. We were the very first. I think it was 1999, not 2000. But anyways, it was just around then. And so, yeah, the the, the rest is history. And I would say you've mentioned trailblazer. I would say that is a perfect word to describe you in in the sense that you have been in so many unique situations. Like you mentioned going back and doing a residency, you know, so many years after graduation. And you don't see a lot of PAs doing that. I do want to take a moment, go back to your advocacy work. You know, you mentioned running for office and the importance of PAs being involved in political advocacy. Do you, what advice would you give a PA, especially, you know, a female PA who's considering running for office? There's an old phrase out there. If you want something done, ask a busy person. Hmm. And I never, I hear this a lot from people. When my kids are grown, I'll do this. Or um, when I have more time, I will do this. But there's never going to be a perfect time to do it. So if you have the interest, do it when you want to. I have seen so many political candidates carrying babes in arms, pushing children in strollers, um, you know, going and picking up their kid from daycare um, before they go and give a speech and setting the kid down in the back of the room because they have to, you know, do a, do a, you know, an event. Do it now because we need you now. If you want to get involved in the state legislature and you don't know how to start, if you are able to get to your state capital. And I was lucky I was just an hour from Phoenix. It wasn't too much of a drive. Um, Get involved with what bills are coming up in committee. There's ways to do that. And then if there's something that speaks to you and speaks is that word that, you know, has an impact with whether it's a healthcare bill or it's um, education. When if you have children, education is always important, especially to women. Um, see if you can mm-hmm. speak in front of committee or just show up at a committee meeting, because that will get you an idea of how everything works. And that's another thing for promoting the profession. I would sit next to the lobbyist and we would shake hands and he says, I'm with the Arizona Hospital Association. What are you doing here? I said, I'm a PA and I'm speaking on this bill on dental care. I think that pregnant women should have really good dental coverage. And then I would get up in front and speak and say, I'm a physician assistant. That's the first thing I would lead it with. I practice medicine and that I had experience in women's health and I saw women with their, you know, whatever the experience was, blah, 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 go forward and get out there. Mm -hmm. And um, that is one way that you can do advocacy, but you can also promote our profession because there's lots of doctors out there that are speaking and psychologists and social workers. And then you got the lobbyists for every organization. But I was always the only Mm -hmm. PA that showed up at these committee meetings 
speaking on um, healthcare issues. And there's a million of them from firefighters to, with smoke inhalation who are trying to get disability because they're going into asbestos buildings. So many things that anyone as a PA can identify and say, oh, I've seen patients with that, or I understand the healthcare needs of that. Um, and then you can you know, either write something to your legislator. If you can't get to uh, the committee meeting and say, I'm a PA, I practice medicine, I see this in my practice, this is so important, this bill has to pass. Or the opposite is, this is bull, uh, this is a terrible bill and it won't work because I practice medicine and this is not how it goes. And most legislators don't understand medicine at all. Most of them are business people or a lot of them are teachers, or they're just regular people who have time. You know, unfortunately, a lot of um, a lot of legislators are retired business people who have money. You either have to be self-employed because legislature goes on during the day, during the week, hmm. or you have to be retired. Right? Most of us are going to work during the week, so they really have no understanding, yeah. very little understanding on healthcare, women's issues, whatever it is that speaks to your heart. And they are listening to and looking to their constituents to give them accurate information so they know how to vote. Otherwise, they're going to listen to the lobbyists and then they're going to vote the way the lobbyists tell them. And some lobbyists are great. Every uh, Our um, PA association in Arizona had a wonderful lobbyist that would speak for PA issues, um, but not all um, state associations have a lobbyist. And the nurses are out there. Let me tell you, the nurse lobbies is huge. The nurses are out there. Um, I spoke, I was at a committee meeting when they were trying mm -hmm. to get um, clinical nurse specialists to prescribe some medications, allow them to prescribe some medications that were necessary. So there's all sorts of things going mm -hmm. on. Um, but as a PA, I decided I wanted to show up and show allegiance to them saying, I'm a PA, I understand what you do, you understand what I do, and we can partner on things. So that's what I did and how I pushed my av advocacy was if I could show up at the state capitol. And I know a lot of us work and a lot of us work during the week. And I know a lot of us have commitments. Lots of times you can just write your legislator um, an email or there's ways to get in touch with them if you find out about what kind of bills are coming up um, in your legislature so you can let them know. They do read it. They legally have to read every single email and they do keep a list of the yes and no's. And usually whatever has the most wins and that's how they vote. If there's a lot of people that are vocal against something, and even though you think it's important, if they get more against, hmm. then they may vote that way because that's what their constituents want. So that's a lot of what I did with my advocacy. And of course, promoting the profession, always letting everyone know that I was a PA. Of course. So it sounds like first step is, you know, getting educated, seeing what's coming up on, on the docket, yeah. and then reaching out and if possible, getting your voice in the room, seeing if you can go to the meetings and speak up, not just like you said, for the profession, but for your, you know, experiences, opinions on whatever's being discussed. There's also two organizations that I will just say for women that are in almost every state. One is called Emerge. Emerge is an organization that just breeds women leaders. It's not political. Quick correction. So Emerge is a political organization. It helps women who are looking to run for democratic office. Um, if you want to learn more, check it out on our website for now. Let's get back to it. It's it's to train women leaders. Most of them do want to run for office, but not all of them want to run for office. Um, and so that's a training that I went to and they have them in most states. It's called Emerge. It's another organization, if everyone's heard of Emily's List. Emily's oh, List I've heard of is that one. Mm -hmm. um, a pack that gives money to candidates and trains candidates. And no one does everyone know what the word Emily stands for? Because Emily is not a person. Emily is an acronym that stands for early money is like yeast. It makes so rise. 
And so Emily's list um, has California list, Arizona list, every state has a list. And so those are two organizations that you women can look into, look at their states list. I'm sure there's New York list, New Jersey list, whatever, and find that organization. They do candidate trainings and they can help uh, point you in the right direction. Um, so Emerge is great. And one of the lists is great. So that's another uh, thing that I would um, tell women if they were even thinking about it. And a lot of times I would take training with women who said, I would like to run for office in three years when my daughter's in middle school, but I'm here taking a training now. You know, so it doesn't have to be that you're going to run for office tomorrow. You know, you can still attend a training or get to know people, feel the water, see if it's right for you, even if that's not something you want to do right away, or even if you're not sure if that's what you want to do. But um, it's there, you know, some, there's two organizations I can point people to. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ho who knows? Hopefully we'll inspire, get people interested to, like you said, at least if not, you know, running tomorrow, getting the idea of, hey, this is this is a possibility. This is something that I could I can do. And the other thing is, before I forget, is school board. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to be mayor. I don't want to be in the state ledge. School board is not a lot of work. You don't have to raise a lot of money, but you have a big impact on people's lives. And being from science and being from healthcare. I have been to so many school board meetings and there are very few people on school boards that I have met that have any science or medical background. There are usually moms, dads, business owners. Having someone like us who understands science and data and math and, and all of that, we need more people like us on school boards. And those are usually um, unaffiliated. You don't have to have a political party. It's the same mostly with city councils and mayors. But running for school board is a good way for someone to test the waters, but make a big impact in their community. Oh, that's great. That's a, that's an awesome suggestion. Now, I kind of want to switch topics a little bit. You mentioned working with Planned Parenthood, and I know you were, you know, a, obviously a, a very big advocate for women's reproductive rights. I'm, I'm interested to pick your brain, having worked with Planned Parenthood for, for such a long time. Have you seen changes in either reproductive health legislation or practices? I know that's kind of a, a broad, big question, but I wanted to pick your brain on that. It's funny. When I started, my first job with Planned Parenthood was in 1985. And somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember thinking to myself, and I was in California, we're a very well-protected state. I just had this feeling. We were in a time where there wasn't anything going on. There was not the, the issues with the picketers and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that I just had that feeling that it wasn't going to last forever. We were like in a little fairy tale time that everything was quiet and wonderful and Roe v. Wade had passed in the 70s, and we thought it was going to last forever, even though I remember thinking, no, we cannot rest on our laurels. I, you know, I've gone through off and on on Planned Parenthood um, since the 80s. They have changed and uh, moved with the times. I remember there was mm -hmm. a time that um, we weren't allowed to provide uh, medical abortion uh, medication um, and in California, we can, and then California passed, and there's some states where we can actually uh, provide surgical abortion. And so when I was in California, I was sent to Rochester, New York, to learn how to uh, do surgical abortions. But when I came back to California, Planned Parenthood decided they weren't ready yet to allow PAs to um, provide surgical abortions. So I didn't get to use those skills very much. I've seen uh, the progress and the changes. And of course, being in California, we're in a well-protected state, at least for now. Um, we have a lot of women around the country who are in dire mm -hmm. um, straits. And it, it breaks my heart because I feel that um, it's not my place as a healthcare provider whatever my personal feelings are, to mm -hmm. judge anyone. 
I cannot put myself in anyone's shoes. And I've always told my patients, you don't have to justify anything to me. I'm not here to judge you. Just like I'm not here to judge the drug abuser or the person who uh, is brought in in handcuffs in the ER because they alleged to commit a crime. I'm there to provide health care. Mm-hmm. And so we're not we're supposed to provide non-judgmental health care. And I think that should go across the board to everybody. I'm very scared and very worried. And I think the future in a lot of states don't look very good. And I hope that Congress does act uh, before it's too late. And I think also whatever people's personal beliefs for choice are, and I respect everyone's personal belief, but I would never, ever put my personal beliefs onto someone else and say that because I don't believe abortion is right, you're wrong. If it's legal, then it's legal. Um, Whether you have a choice of helping them or not, that's your choice to be employed and help someone or not help someone. We are healthcare providers and reproductive health is inclusive of everything. Women's health and abortion rights is healthcare. Um, so that's that's my stance on all of that. And I will fight the rest of my life to keep that free. Very well said, well spoken. And like you said before, people with a with that science background often aren't in the room where decisions are being made. So kind of goes back to reiterate the need, not just with reproductive rights, but with all important pieces of legislation to have someone with our experience and set of skills to bring to the table. The reason why I was so interested to talk to you about it is because of everything going on in in the world now. And I feel like it's very easy to feel like we're stepping back in a sense. It's it's very scary. And I'm old enough to have had an abortion before Roe v. Wade. So I know what that was like. My daughter, you know, has never been accidentally pregnant. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that. But I wouldn't want anyone to have to deal with that with themselves or their children. And again, as many women that are out there, that's how many stories there are. Everybody has a personal story and it's no one's business to judge, whether it's for the life of the mother, Mm -hmm. the life of the child, uh, you know, something, you know, it was rape, it was incest, it doesn't matter. I have a firm belief that our bodies are more important when we're not incubators. And we know as healthcare providers that pregnancy can be a very dangerous medical time for women. We know that we have a lot of maternal morbidity and mortality, especially in women of color in this country. That's another issue that needs to be worked on to make a woman continue a pregnancy against her will because it can be a very dangerous time for her health, to me is almost a form of slavery. Um, If a woman wants to be pregnant, then God love her, just help her out as much as you can. But if a woman does not want to be pregnant and take those risks, no one has a right to I believe, force a woman to be an incubator against her will. Um, And it has nothing to do with, oh, she can always give it up for adoption. Yes, she first has to have nine months of pregnancy, and she then has to have a delivery of the baby. She has to have the baby and with all of the risks. And yes, most women do just fine and do well, but you know, we, all of us that do OBGYN, we've all seen it. Heard the, yeah, heard the stories or seen it firsthand. Yeah. So again, it's all about the woman, the woman first, and what does she want to do? And is she willing to take those risks to have the baby? Then we will do everything in our power to keep her healthy, but we shouldn't force her. And that's what I'm against. I don't want anyone to force me to do something with my health against my will. Yeah, it comes down to the freedom of of choice, of autonomy over, you know, your body. People, I feel like they they enter into maybe this mindset focusing only on the child or only on, oh, well, you know, she shouldn't have done this or that. And they're not thinking about the greater medical issues that could come from it, not just physical, but, you know, psychological and all the things that can come with pregnancy. Right. And that's so 
putting blame on someone. It's like saying, oh, I won't treat your lung cancer because you smoke two packs a day. How many times have you gone in a room and said, I'm sorry, you have lung cancer. You're a heavy smoker. I don't want to help you. Never. Never. Or someone comes into the ER and they were not wearing eye protection and got something in their eye playing with their power tool. We say, no, you were being reckless. No, of course not. It's the same thing. It, and so many women are having sex against their will. Now that, you know, I mean, I've done this my whole career, but I've wor I'm working reproductive healthcare, working mm -hmm. in the college population, drinking, drugs, having, you know, sex under the influence and, and all of that. So you mm -hmm. being reckless, part of being reckless is part of being a young person. You know, you don't always think through the, um, the repercussions of, of what you're doing, but someone shouldn't um, make them then say, okay, uh, you made a mistake. Now you could pay for it with your life. You know, that's being incredibly vindictive. And I don't. Yeah. Shame, shame and blame should not be a part of the plan of care. Yeah. Or the decision-making. Never. And again, sometimes you come out of the room and you shake your head and you say, oh my God, why did they do that? You know, a diabetic who isn't following their diet, they're not taking their insulin, they're, you know, in DKA, whatever. You shake your head, but you still work to make them better and make their life better. And I think it, there's no difference. You know, we all have to um, put down our personal biases and try to make a difference in somebody else's life. And that's what I tell myself every morning. It sounds silly. I get up in the morning, I get dressed, and I say, today I'm going to make a difference in somebody else's life. And it's small. And it might be, I may not even know what it is. I'll tell you a funny story. I was on Facebook one day and I don't know how this happened, but somebody just messaged me. She said, I have been looking for you forever. She said, you took care of me when I was pregnant, like 20 years ago. Oh my gosh. I, you were the nicest. You made such an impression on my life. She's now one of my Facebook friends. <laughs> I haven't even, but she says, I have been looking all over for you. I wanted to tell you that you made such an impression in my life being, you know, my provider when I was pregnant. Oh my gosh. You may not even know it until something like that happens. And they say, I've been looking for you forever just to let you know that I respect you and that you just made my pregnancy amazing because of who you are. You know, I mean, just every day, isn't that why we're there? Just to make a difference in somebody else's life, whether we even hear it or not. You know, once in a while, I'll have somebody say to me, no one's ever explained it to me like that before. Or I now I understand. Okay, I just didn't understand. That's why I do what I do. It brings tears to my eyes. That's all I need. That's what I do what I do when somebody says, oh, okay, and the light bulb goes off. Of That's course. what you're taught. Oh, no one's ever told me why I get this or why my period's like this or why I get a vaginal infection or why you can get pregnant with withdrawal. I didn't understand, you know, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. you're just there to impart um, information. We need to talk to our patients and impart. Well, you are preaching to the choir. I always tell my patients that my goal of the office visit not only is to help you, but it's to help you understand what's going on with your body. The goal is for you to leave the office visit knowing more about your situation than you did going in. Now, I want to kind of go back to the to talk about sexual and reproductive health advocacy rights. Is there any organizations or groups that you would recommend our listeners look into or anyone you want to give a particular shout out to? Um, well, you know, I mean, people talk about Planned Parenthood, but it's not necessarily just Planned Parenthood. Um, NARAL, uh, National Abortion Rights and Act Action League, um, they, they're over um, all of the non-Planned Parenthood clinics in the country. Um, and, and the and NAF, which is the National Abortion Federation, has an organization called Clinicians for Choice. 
And I used to be a member, I don't know if they still have it, but um, there used to be PAs for choice and P's for choice. And then I gave a lecture once they have, they do, still do have an organization called Medical Students for Choice. I know they, they have that. I just have one last question before we wrap up. You've had a myriad of roles in your lifetime, one of which was returning to clinical practice after, you know, being out of clinical practice. I want to hear a little bit about what that experience was like and what advice you have you may have for other PAs. I did definitely have a horrible case of burnout. I took I had a year where I literally just sat in a chair and knitted. Literally, I didn't do anything but knit and sit in a chair. Um and I had been working for over 30 years. One thing I wanted to say though, for anybody who has taken any time off and is worried, it is like riding a freaking bicycle. I feel like I have not been away. I did my CMEs and I looked at a couple of books. So all the birth control pill names have changed. Uh, well, most of them, not all of them. And took a little refresher here and there. And I learned how to do Nexplanon insertion removals because we didn't have Nexplanon. I remember I was original Norplant. I don't know if anybody out there did Norplants, but um, I did those Norplants back in, what is it, the 90s when we got Norplants. But um, it, it, you know, it, it really is becomes part of you. So I feel it's all there and it came back really, really quick and easy um, when I started back to work. I think it only took like a month, not, oh, not even a month, maybe a couple of weeks where I was like, oh yeah, this is like riding a horse. I, I remember all of this. Um, and partly I think because where I'm working, it's not high acuity. I don't I think if I went back to the ED and all of that, it would have been different, all the other drugs or urgent care or whatever, but this is pretty much cookbook medicine. And I chose it for a reason, cookbook medicine. But what is hard is the um, burnout. And I am hearing more and more from PAs that, you know, there's so many patients and so much work to do. I was going to say the old fashioned word paperwork, but people don't have paperwork anymore. They have charting on computers to do MR now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so much backlog that they take home or they stay after hours. And that is the way to burn, burn people out. Um, one of the things that I think helped me was going back and forth between different specialties. Um, and a lot of people talk about, oh, I've been doing ENT for, for 10 years. Can I try something else? Or I'm, I, you know, I, I've done urgent care for five years and now I'm thinking of doing outpatient cardiology. Can I do that? And my first thing, thing is, of course, you're a PA and that's what's so wonderful. And that's the other thing I say to people who say, oh, I should have been a doctor. Maybe I should have been a doctor. Yeah. How many doctors do you know work in the ER and then go work OBGYN? How many doctors do you know that do surgery and then do occupational medicine? Zero. I did do, I did work in an ED once with a doctor who was in ER medicine and he was going back for plastics. Oh my God, he did that for years because he was doing it part-time. He was working shifts in the ER and then trying, you know, to become a plastic surgeon. I, I give him a lot of credit, but that was good. That's going to take him forever. He, you know, certain amount of surgeries and all the things he had to do. So, but that's the beauty of being a PA is that we can go back and forth between specialties. And I think that's what saved me in all my years was when I would feel burned out. You know, some people would look at my CV and say, oh my God, a lot of my jobs were concurrent. I didn't have a lot of jobs where it was Monday through Friday, one practice. You know, I would work a couple of shifts a week in the ED and maybe a shift in the urgent care and then maybe a couple of shifts with Planned Parenthood. And, you know, it worked out to be, no, I didn't have, I didn't have health insurance most of the time. Luckily, I either, we either paid out of pocket or mostly we paid out of pocket. 
Um, I think I had one or two jobs where I worked at a clinic where I got great benefits, but um, we bought our own health insurance most of the time growing when I, my, my family was growing up, but it really was helpful. And I also felt that I didn't get as burned out because I wasn't there in the ER every single shift. I wasn't there at Planned Parenthood every single shift. It was, I had variety. Now I'm, I'm saying not everybody can do that. You know, some people don't like shifting gears that fast and that, that, but I think for those that maybe are feeling burned out and are wondering if they can do it, I'm going to say, do it. I've heard people say, oh, I want to be an injector and I want to do Botox and do some derm, but I've only done ENT my whole career. Do it. Learn how to be a Botox injector. And that's going to save you from burnout. I mean, it may not be permanent, but it's certainly going to really help you. Plus, you're so much more marketable um, with different experience. Because if I could go to the OBGYN clinic, and I know it's different now, but say, okay, I worked urgent care. I can handle um, a URI. I can handle pharyngitis. I, I've seen, um, you know, appendicitis and, and uh, you know, upper whatever, gastrointestinal. You know, that only makes you a better provider and um, able to, you know, give your patients better care. And you're not narrow in this little niche. I think that only really helps. The other thing that I really enjoy, which I did a lot, was I would take first assist call. I don't know if it's like this now, but even like when I was working at a clinic and working in the OBGYN department, I had the pager a couple times a week and a couple weekends a month for all of the surgeons in the community. So I would be on first assist call for any surgery that would come up, anything, whether it was a gunshot wound or cholecystectomy, whatever it was, I was on the first assist. And that was really, really good too. I mean, I got surgical training in my residency, so I felt comfortable in the OR. But um, as PAs, a lot of them, a lot of us are assisting C-sections and doing gynec surgery and stuff like that. And so doing first assist, maybe doing a little first assist, if you can get into doing that. Um, a lot of times people uh, can contract themselves out as a first assist. Um, that's another little thing that you can add to your resume. And I did all of this. Now, granted, I only had one child because I did have some issues holding another pregnancy after my disaster. Um, and I know that does make a difference. But I did do the first assist call when my daughter was in middle school and uh, high school. And um, I was on call for all the surgeries in our uh, practice when my daughter was in high school. So, um, yeah, I mean, you it, it can be done when you have younger children. It depends on what your life, life is like. But um, that's another thing that helped me and uh, helped prevent burnout and expanded, expanded my repertoire. Because if you're in a niche too long, you've got 20 years of, outpatient cardiology and then you say oh i'd like to do you know obgyn it's a harder sell than if you've done a little bit of it before um but i will tell anyone even anyone that listens to this that says i really liked women's health i'm doing family practice i'm not really seeing a lot of women's health i'm not getting what i want or i want more experience get some shifts go do some shifts at your local planned parenthood You'll get lots of women's health. You won't get any OB, but you'll get lots of gyne. You'll get lots of uh, experience and you might get your enough women's health to make you feel better and, of course, make you a better provider. Um, though I have to say that people don't think Planned Parenthood does OB. The one I worked out in Illinois, we had a midwife and we did have an obstetrical practice in our Planned Parenthood. And there are other Planned Parenthoods around the country that actually offer OB care. So that also gets me mad when people think Planned Parenthood is only, you know, women's health and, uh, you know, GYN and abortion. 
not. It's OB. Um, he was a midwife. He delivered at the hospital. He provided obstetrical care, and that was part of our Planned Parenthood. And I actually um, volunteered and was clinic director um, for one year when I worked at one of the Planned Parenthoods. So I knew how that know how the organization and how all that works. So um, yeah. So in a long, convoluted way, I'm kind of giving you my ideas of how to help burnout. So. I'm hoping that, you know, like you said, someone hears this and maybe if they're, they're feeling stuck or yeah, maybe they are burnt out in the, in the clinic environment or they've been out of the clinic environment for so long, they're afraid to go back. They can listen to this and say, Hey, you know, what am I, what am I waiting for? You know, don't feel bad about being out of a clinic for a while. I, I really, that was scary. I, and I, like I said, I've been reading on these Facebook groups. Oh, I, you know, I have, my kids are now in kindergarten. It's been five years. I haven't practiced. Oh my God. Um, you'll be okay. I'm, I'm here to say you'll be okay. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it comes back. Um, the doing the CMEs, I did a hundred CMEs in about two months um, and got all those done so I could get my uh, C back. Um, and uh, doing that really helped refresh, uh, refreshed everything for me. And then I, uh, you know, did some studying to take the boards again. So that, that fit the bill and that got me back into the swing of things. So yeah. Well, I could sit here and talk to you all day long. And I am definitely at some point would love to do another episode talking just about your experience in England. Um, oh, yeah. I know we didn't yeah. get to it today and I, I, know. I don't want to give anything away because you did write a whole book about it too. <laughs> well, so we'll, uh, I will say that for the listeners that if you are interested in, in the experience of being a PA in England, you can get her book. What is it? PA in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Amazon still. You yes. can order it on Amazon. Um, so maybe we can do an episode in the future talking about that experience. Cause I think that's one that a lot of, you know, it's not women's health related, but I think it's something a lot of PAs, you know, would be interested to hear more about. Yeah. And, uh, again, that was just, uh, you know, uh, one of those things where I did not have a family. I understand that, but it was just, yeah, let's just do it. You know? So, um, you just, uh, you, you just, go and uh, life takes you different directions and um, it's just a fun journey. I think that's the biggest thing is to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. That is a wonderful, wonderful note to end on. Was there anything else you wanted to to talk about? Oh, well, I could talk for days. But we can't- <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for taking me down memory lane. Oh my gosh. Of course. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Well, that about wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with PA extraordinaire Sharon Gerard. I want to give a huge thank you to Sharon for taking the time to sit down with me and chat about her career, political advocacy, abortion rights, and combating burnout. If you want to check out Sharon's book, PA in the UK, about her experience working in the UK, you can find it on Amazon. I'll include links to the organizations Sharon mentioned in the show notes on our website, www.the-apog-podcast at blueberry.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. Now, tune in next time where I'll be reviewing the ins and outs of fibrocystic breast changes and fibroadenomas. You can listen to the show on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things that we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. It's the end of my pandering, as always. Until next time, stay safe, tell somebody you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye. Goodbye.